just before our third presentation this afternoon, I vowed to you that when we meet again next year at the next College Art Association Convention, we will have updated statistics building on the wonderful work that Mary Garrard did, uh, now seeming way too long ago in 1981. So we will have fresh statistics. Our format for the very for the end of this will be Linda. Nauplin speaking, and then to the extent that we have uh, time, audience participation, I'm going to ask all of the committee members to come to the fore and kind of wiggle their fingers at the conclusion. So if you want to engage us and, and bring ideas to the committee, please feel free to do so in that format if we run out of full time. Thank you. I'm Linda Nauplin, and... Uh... to dedicate my very spontaneous, really spontaneous little talk today to the memory of my mother who died last month and who made me what I am today in every possible way. So this is to you, Mom. I just want to remind us of the power of our mothers, dead or alive. So anyway, what I'm going to talk to you about this afternoon uh, is actually part of a chapter in a book edited by that incomparable team of Norma Browdy and Mary Garrard, which is going to come out in the fall, published by Abrams, called The Power of Feminist Art. And I wrote a chapter, which is really personal reminiscence, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. Personal reminiscence about the very beginning of feminist art history. How I got into it, what it meant to me, what it was like, really to be in on the ground floor of a new discipline. I call this chapter Starting from Scratch, because really that's what it was. <laughs> we started from scratch. In 1969, three major events occurred in my life. I had a baby, I became a feminist, and I organized the first class in women and art at Vassar College. And I figure since our numbers were a little off at the wrong date, <laughs> I could go back to 1969, so that's what I'm doing. All three events were in some way in interconnected. Having the baby, my second daughter, at the very beginning of the women's liberation movement, gave me a very different view of motherhood than I had had back in the middle 50s when I had had my first child. Feminism created a momentous change in both my personal life and my intellectual outlook. And organizing that first class in feminist art history irrevocably altered my view of the discipline and my place in it, so that all my future production was has been and continues to be touched by this originating moment of insight and revision. Now, it's hard to recapture the sheer exhilaration of that historical moment. Harder, perhaps, to remember the concrete details of a conversion experience for many women of my age which was and position, which was rather like the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. A conviction that before I had been blind, now I had seen the light. In my case, the light had been provided by a friend, really just an acquaintance, 
who shortly after my return from a year in Italy with husband and baby to my familiar job in the Vassar Art History Department, showed up in my apartment with a briefcase full of polemical literature. Have you heard about women's liberation, she asked me. I admitted that I hadn't. Political activity in Italy, although vigorous, had not been noteworthy for its feminist component. Pinching was more like. But that, in my case, it was unnecessary. I said I already was a liberated woman, and I knew enough about feminism, suffragettes, and such, to realize that we, in 1969, were beyond such things. Read these, she said brusquely, and you'll change your mind. So saying, she thrust her hand into her bulging briefcase and brought forth a heap of roughly printed, crudely illustrated journals on coarse paper. The pile included, I remember, Red Stockings newsletter, Off Our Backs, Every Woman, and many other publications, including special editions of radical news sheets run by men, which angry women had taken over for the explicit purpose of examining the conditions of their exploitation. I started reading, and I couldn't stop. This had nothing to do with old-fashioned ideas about getting the vote for women and getting men out of the saloons. This was brilliant, furious, polemical stuff, written from the guts and the heart, questioning not just the entire position of women in the contemporary New Left and anti-Vietnam movements, subordinate, exploited, sexually objectified, but the position of women within society in general. And these articles, which touched on every area in which women were involved, from repression in the workplace to oppression at home, from art production to housework. I remember particularly Pat Maynardy's stunning article about the politics of housework. Were above all striking in their assertion that the personal was political and that politics, where sex roles and gender were concerned, began with the personal. That night, reading until 2 a.m., making discovery after discovery, cartoonish light bulbs going off in my head at a frantic pace, my consciousness was indeed raised, as it was to be over and over again within the course of the next year or so. Or perhaps the right figure of speech is a spatial one. It was as though I kept opening doors onto an endless series of bright rooms, each one opening off from the next, each promising a new revelation, each moving me forward from a known space to a larger, lighter, unknown one. A few weeks later, or maybe it was a few months, after a certain amount of thought, but not much specific research outside of a thorough rereading of Simone de Beauvoir, I posted the following notice on the bulletin board in the art history office at Vassar. I'll read the announcement and the tentative syllabus exactly as I wrote them at the time. November 25th, Art 364B. November 25th, 1969. I am changing the subject of the Art 364B seminar to The Image of Women in the 19th and 20th centuries. I have become more and more involved in the problem of the position of women during the course of this year, 
and I think it would make a most interesting and innovative seminar topic involving materials from a variety of fields not generally included in art historical research. This would be a pioneering study in an untouched field. Among areas to be included might be, and here's my list, which I think is uh, <laughs> pretty uh, ambitious. One, woman as angel and devil in 19th century art. Two, the concept of the new through history with special emphasis on the 19th and 20th century. Anatomy, must a new be a female, what is shown and what is not shown, etc. Three, pornography and sexual imagery. Four, the social significance of costume. Five, social realities and artistic myths. Six, advertising imagery of women. Seven, the theme of the prostitute. Eight, the holy family and the joys of domesticity. Imagery of the secular family as nexus of value in bourgeois art in the 19th century. Nine, socially conscious representations of lower class women. Ten, Freudian mythology and modern art. Colin, Picasso, and surrealism. <laughs> Eleven, Matisse and the harem concept of women. Twelve, women as artists. Thirteen, the vampire woman in art and literature. Fourteen, women in pre-Raphaelite painting and Victorian literature. Most of this territory and a great deal more has never been touched. It would involve work in history, sociology, psychology, literature, etc. Signed, Linda Knopfler. <laughs> now, looking back from the vantage point of almost a quarter of a century, I'm struck by the remarkable combination of ambition and naivete characterizing the project. Did I really think we could cover all those topics in the course of a single semester? Why did I confine women as artists to a single class? Actually, there were several sessions on women artists in the class as it was taught. And why was I so fixated on the vampire woman? <laughs> Maybe Sandra knows that. Alas, since I had never kept a diary, and there, you know, we didn't have computers, the only minimal evidences of the first semester remain in my keeping, I cannot answer specific questions about what I had in mind. My fuzziness about these issues is a poignant reminder to historians about the unreliability of witness accounts of events and, and uh, incidents, especially when the witness is identical with the historian in question. So I just can't remember. Nevertheless, I am struck by the fact that many of these topics have continued to be of major importance to feminist art historians and critics, and equally interesting that they have served as the basis for much of my own work in years to come. Even more amazing, we did, as a class, cover all these issues, and more, admittedly not with the nuance and wealth of information marking subsequent uh, efforts in these areas, but with a lot of passion, a sense of discovery, and with the knowledge that whatever we did counted, for everything, quite literally, remained to be done. We were doing the spade work of feminist art history, and we knew it. I say we because in this undergraduate seminar, we were we a committed group of feminist or proto-feminist researchers tracking down the basic materials of our embryonic discipline. 
Although as teacher of the group, I had a certain priority in directing the inquiry, I was in many ways as ignorant as my students as far as bibliography or background was concerned. Everything had to be constructed from the beginning. We were both inventors and explorers, inventors of hypotheses and concepts, explorers of the vast sea of undiscovered bibliographical material, the underground rivers and streams of women's art and the representation of women. As far as bibliography was concerned, the reading list had to be constructed as we went along. There were no textbooks, no histories of women artists, no brilliantly theorized examinations of the representation of prostitution, no well-illustrated analyses of pornography from a feminist point of view. When I repeated the class uh, at Stanford the next year, a group of us went down to the porn shops of San Francisco to do our research, much to the amazement of the usual obituaries. The concept of the gaze, insofar as it related to visual representation of women, had yet to be articulated. Yes, to be sure, there were some outdated and rather patronizing, quote, histories of women artists like Walter Shaw, Shaw Sparrow's Women Painters of the World, 1905, Interesting because of its sheer anachronism, serving as raw material for analysis rather than as valid documentation. For raw information, not always accurate, about the 19th century and earlier, there was Mrs. Elizabeth Ellett's Women Artists of All Ages and Country, Countries from 1858, Clara Erskine Clement's Women in the Fine Arts, 1904, and Ellen Clayton's English Female Artists in two volumes from 1867, none of them illustrated. But luckily for us, since Vassar had been a women's college, there was a rich repository of materials on individual women and their achievements, in the arts as well as in other areas, and a great deal of material about the social problems and the position of women historically. Vassar had a feminist as well as a purely feminine history, although this aspect of the past was decidedly low-keyed during the 1950s and 60s, especially since, at the very moment when the women's movement was getting off the ground, the college itself was switching from a single-sex institution to a co-educational one. So there's a kind of countercurrent of repressing the feminist past of Vassar at this moment. In a certain sense, given the specific nature of my own experience of Vassar, where I had been a student, class of 51, and a teacher for many years by the time I taught my first class in women and art, I had always been a feminist, albeit a partly unconscious and often confused one. Certainly, I believed that I was as intelligent and capable as most of the men I knew. Although constantly riven by the self-doubts and pangs of guilt that afflicted smart and ambitious women in those days, I, like most intellectual women at the time, thought my problems were my own, unique, the products of neurosis or disorganization, not social problems afflicting all women of my sort. Neurosis, not the double message of high achievement coupled with sacrifice of self for husband and family, conveyed to intelligent women by the ideological structures controlling genuine behavior. It was neurosis that was the reason we were so mixed up, I thought, 
so often incapable of focusing on intellectual work without pain and conflict. I was exhausted so often, I believe, because I wasn't well organized enough to juggle housework, admittedly rudimentary, childcare, husband, teaching, and graduate studies, while also commuting from Poughkeepsie to New York part-time. My graduate program, and I often laugh when graduate students say, but I'm not getting a balanced program. My graduate program consisted of whatever was given at the Institute of Fine Arts on Wednesday afternoon and Saturday morning. It balanced out in the end, of course, but if I couldn't manage such a full life, which also included poetry writing, giving and going to fairly lively parties, I never sacrificed pleasure. <laughs> That's our rule. <laughs> you must have a good time. Mm -hmm. Taking in vanguard theater and dance performances in New York, playing the recorder with an ancient music group, and teaching a children's modern dance class, which was exhausting but fun. If I couldn't do all that with sufficient calm and expertise, I felt it was because I somehow hadn't figured things out properly. I didn't consider the fact that organized childcare arrangements were non-existent and that women were supposed to run the household single-handed, even if they were professionals. If I had to correct papers, I felt guilty about not doing research for a seminar report at the Institute. If I worked on the seminar report, I felt haunted by shopping I was neglected. If I shopped, I felt I wasn't paying enough attention to my child. There was no system of moral or practical support for women like me at that moment in history. Just unbounded personal energy and a will to persist under difficult circumstances. At the same time, though, and this is interesting, my Vassar education and my years of teaching gifted women there had given me a profound sense of what women could do, even if they weren't encouraged to do much but little league and family after graduation. My own work was respected and rewarded, my energy and passionate commitment admired. And in some ways, I have always been interested in the achievements and problems of talented women. After all, the first paper I had written in freshman history, awarded the History Prize that year, had been about the Fabian socialist Beatrice Webb. In social psychology, I had produced a content analysis of women's magazines, demonstrating their contradictory message about women's roles. I had discovered after months of reading Ladies' Home Journal and Good Housekeeping that despite the fact that achieving women like Mrs. Roosevelt and Dorothy Thompson were featured in their high-minded articles, the fiction section told a different tale. In these emotionally charged stories, professional women were inevitably punished for their ambition and wives and mothers who dedicated themselves to husband and family were always rewarded for their sacrifice, as well as winning the reader's sympathy. Then, too, the head of the art history department at Vassar, Agnes Ringe Claflin, had always encouraged women artists. I remember visits and gallery talks from Lauren McIver, Irene Rice Pereira, and Grace Hardigan in the early 1950s, and they were memorable. As a sophomore, I had thrust a poem into the hands of Lauren McIver. And as a young teacher, I remember being bowled over not just by Hardigan's work, but by her tough, bohemian, unconventional persona as well. 
Works by Georgia O'Keefe, Kay Sage, Florian Stettheimer, Vera De Silva, Agnes Martin, and Joan Mitchell hung in the art gallery. A lively woman sculptor, Concetta Scaravaglione, taught sculpture in the studio. Even earlier in the teens, my mother had shared with me her enthusiasm for women writers like Virginia Woolf, Catherine Mansfield, Rebecca West, and Eleanor Wiley. At Vassar, women were my teachers, respected scholars and intellectuals in their own right. Though most of them were a little too tweedy and unglamorous to serve as exemplar in any field but the academic, some, like Agnes Claflin, were elegant, worldly, sophisticated, and a bit wicked as well as brilliant, all characteristics which have charmed me and continue to do so today. I demand wickedness. All in all, one might have called me a premature feminist in many ways before 1969 and my discovery of women's liberation. And now my time had come. What I had felt confusedly, partially, individually had become a mass movement, passionately articulated in speeches, articles, books, and meetings by ever-increasing groups of women taking inspiration and gaining power from each other, sharing their feelings, their ideas, and their indignation. By the time Art 364B Women and Art got together, got underway in January of 1970, there were a few changes and additions. The reading list was extremely interdisciplinary, but I can remember certain specific things about it. That discoveries were rife, that there was an air of excitement and enthusiasm, that students literally fought to give not merely one or two, but as many as three class presentations. I mean, there was just great anxiety to be able to, to get out there and, and discover. And discoveries were right, especially when it came to class presentations on women artists. Frida Kahlo, believe it or not, then relatively unknown to all but a small group of cognoscenti, came to life. As did Merritt Oppenheim, known only as the author of the notorious fur-lined teacup at the Museum of Modern Art, but not known to be a, women, a woman artist by most of the class. I remember that Donna Hunter, now an art historian at the University of California at Santa Cruz, sent away to Sweden for a recent but obscure exhibition catalog of Oppenheim's work and revealed to us the richness, variety, and genuine marvelousness in the surrealist sense of her production. I had thought, Donna wrote to me in her memoir of the class, with a first name like Merritt, that Oppenheim was a man. What different interpretations spring to mind when one knows that a woman in the predominantly male and male chauvinist world of surrealism lined a teacup and spoon symbols of ladylike afternoon rituals with fur? Susan Castris, another memorable member of the class, now curator of paintings at the Yale Center for British Art, remembers that, and I quote, the tremendous sense of intellectual excitement and expectation that was generated was quite palpable, and those in the class all shared this unspoken and heightened awareness. In retrospect, Susan explained, it was a feeling of vicarious empowerment and pride that particularly enthralled us. The idea that women mattered as creators of art and their efforts, whether frustrated, failed, or successful, were worthy topics to study. She recalls in the same letter that several undergraduate presentations were outstanding and the list of areas covered, 
emergence of women, the concept of the nude pornography pre-Raphaelite prototypes, now reads like a prophetic list of some of the central concerns of scholars of 19th century art in the last 20 years. But it was not merely the discovery of women artists and their achievements that was exciting. Looking at old themes in new ways was equally revealing. The imagery of the family, especially of mothers and children, was seen in a new light. A comparison of Mary Cassatt's The Bath or Bette Morisseau's The Cradle with Renoir's portrait of Madame Renoir nursing revealed that it was the male artist's image that was more sentimental, traditional, and cliched. The women's more emotionally distanced and formally avant-garde. And nothing could be more interesting, more poignant, and more difficult to seize than the intersection of the self and history. Where does biography end and history begin? How do one's own memories and experiences relate to what is written in the history books? Can one complain of distortion in historical writing when inevitably with the passage of time our own memories of events and experiences become confused, filmy, and uncertain? I have been drawn to the topic of self and history since the age of 12 when I wrote a long blank verse poem called The Ghosts of the Museum, inspired by my spiritual home away from home, the Brooklyn Museum. Later, when I was considerably older and more sophisticated, I wrote a poem entitled Matisse Swan Self, in which I contemplated a photograph of Matisse sketching a swan in the Bois de Boulogne in 1931, the very year I was born and meditated on the coincidence of totally unrelated events that nevertheless could be interpreted as meaningfully integrated on some transcendent level. Yet in 1969 and the years that followed, the intersection of myself and history was of a different order. It was no mere passive conjunction of events that united me to the history of that year and the ones that followed, but active engagement and participation. A sense that I, along with many other politicized and, yes, liberated women, were actually intervening in the historical process and changing history itself. The history of art, of culture, and of institutions, and of consciousness. And this knowledge, even today, almost 25 years later, gives us an ongoing sense of achievement and purpose like no other that I know of. Thank you.